chapter 11 this morning. Beginning in verse 1, we read, Now it came to pass, when Jesus finished commanding his twelve disciples, that he departed from there to teach and to preach in their cities. And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? John the Baptist, all the Gospels give some information about John the Baptist, and putting them all together, we see a remarkable story of a man who was, from his birth, anointed by the Lord in a very, very special way. His father, Zacharias, was a priest. He served in the temple in Jerusalem, and it was his day, chosen among all of the Levites who could have been chosen, On one particular day, he was given the opportunity to go into the holy place where the altar of incense was to offer prayers on the altar of incense on behalf of the people. That wasn't something that anybody just got to do on a regular basis. It was very selective, very unique that any one of the priests could do it more than once, perhaps in even their lifetime. But Zacharias was chosen to do it on this particular day. And on that day, he was visited by an angel, Gabriel, in fact, And Gabriel told Zacharias that he and his wife would have a child. That was a miraculous thing that was impossible from Zacharias' point of view because his wife was too old to bear children, he thought. And he even expressed his doubt. You can't be telling me this. It can't be true. Elizabeth is too old. She's been barren all of these years. They've been praying for a son, but nothing ever happened. And now this angel is coming to Zacharias and saying, your wife is going to bear a child, and you're going to name him John. Well, that's interesting. That name John doesn't appear anywhere in his family tree, so it was very unusual for this child that we've been born miraculously of this older couple to be named with a name that didn't really fit the family tree. So many different things that went on in that early period of the story of the birth of John and later the birth of Jesus. Miracles, signs and wonders. Amazing story, it really is. And remember, when Elizabeth was about six months pregnant, Mary, the mother of Jesus, came to visit with her by the leading of the Holy Spirit. She enters into the presence of Elizabeth, who is now obviously showing her pregnancy, and she says, Oh! I'm not deserving of being in the presence of the mother of my Lord. And Mary wondered at that. How did she know? She wasn't told any of this. But Elizabeth explained to Mary, the child in my womb leapt for joy when you came into my presence. I knew from that that this was something of a very, very special occasion. She was overwhelmed by the presence of the Holy Spirit in her life. And even John in the womb was praising the Lord by leaping around inside the belly of his mother. And she recognized that as an acknowledgement by John. Her child knew what was going on somehow. And it does tell us that he would be from birth a very, very special individual. In fact, Zechariah was told that he would drink no wine. He was going to be sort of a Nazarite, although it wasn't a complete Nazarite vow, but there were things about this 
particular birth that was not only miraculous in the sense that it occurred with a couple who were too old to bear a child, but also the circumstances around it were so very, very unique. And the empowering of the Holy Spirit was so very obvious in their lives. Especially with the fact that because Zacharias didn't believe, the angel said, you won't be able to speak until the child is born. And he was made to be dumb. Not dumb in the sense of unintelligent, but unable to talk. He went out of the holy place after having been in there for so long, the people were beginning to wonder what's going on. And he comes out and tries to wave to the people, tries to communicate, but can't. And he knew something had taken place. Something had taken place. John the Baptist had been born. He's not just an ordinary kind of guy. He is a prophet of God. He is the last of the Old Testament prophets. Jesus recognized him as that prophet that was to come. The one who was to be the forerunner. The one who was to proclaim the good news, the gospel, that was about to be manifest in the world. This John was given such a great honor. And as John grew, he became known as John the Baptist in his days of maturity as a young man, preaching the word of God. And what was that which he had been been speaking? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. Repent. That's a hard word for people to hear because they all thought they were doing okay. They were children of God as descendants of Abraham. They had a special place in the world. And here's this man who is living in the wilderness, dressed in, well, camel's hair, eating locusts and wild honey, and saying they need to repent. Well, it struck a chord in many people's hearts. And many people began to go to him. And what was he doing? He was baptizing. That's why they call him John the Baptist. It's not because he was a member of the Southern Baptist Association. He was a baptizer. He dumped people into the water to demonstrate their willingness to agree to what he was telling them they must do. Repent. It's a great message. It's still a message today. The world needs to hear it. But John the Baptist was the first to proclaim it. The Old Testament prophets had spoken of this very thing. Isaiah in particular and others spoke of the fact that there was going to be one who would come before the Messiah, the one who was going to be the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, who would sit on the throne of David. He would have a precursor. He would have one who would go before him to prepare the way in the wilderness. Malachi said also the same thing regarding the one who was to come before the Messiah to proclaim the good news. Those things were spoken by the Old Testament prophets, and he is the fulfillment of those things. When he was in the wilderness baptizing He was expecting that one day, because God had told him, he's going to recognize the Messiah when he comes before him. And that one who is going to be chosen by God as the Messiah would be known to John when the Holy Spirit comes down and descends upon him. That took place when Jesus came on the scene. And as Jesus walks toward John, John realizes as the Spirit of God descends upon Jesus. This is the one. In fact, not only was it that the Spirit of God came down upon him, but also the voice of the Father speaking to John from heaven said, 
Behold, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. John knew that's Him. This is the Messiah. This is the Christ. This is the one who is going to sit on the throne of David. This is the one who will set the people of Israel free from their bondage. This is the one who will reign supreme forever and ever according to the Old Testament prophets. This is the one. Later on, as Jesus leaves that scene from the wilderness where John is baptizing, John calls to some of his own disciples and said, See, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John knew this is the one. In John's Gospel, in chapter 3, Beginning with verse 22, we read somewhat near the end of John's ministry, as he's still in the wilderness, proclaiming this very truth. It says in verse 22 of chapter 3 of John's Gospel, After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he remained with them and baptized. Now John also was baptizing in Anon near Salim, because there was much water there. And they came and were baptized, and John had not yet been thrown into prison by that time. That's important because that's part of our story as we're reading in Matthew's Gospel. This is before John was put into prison. And I'll explain what took place to cause that event to take place. But here he is still ministering in the wilderness. And verse 25 says, Then there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, He who is with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing also, and they are coming to him. And John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. John is here recognizing that this is indeed the Messiah. John knew very well that the Messiah had come. And he knew it was Jesus, the son of Mary, because God had revealed it to him in such a remarkable way. Now, back in Matthew's Gospel, in chapter 11, where we've just been reading, it tells us that John is now in prison. In verse 2 again, it says, When John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples to ask a question. Are you the one? Are you the one? Or do we look for another? That's a remarkable thing. Knowing what John already knew, John is now in prison. It's a terrible place to be. And Macarius was known as a place of death. It was a place where many holes had been dug into the ground, dungeons, not just a prison cell like you might know about in our society today. This is a pit. He was placed into a very dark, cold pit. And Macarius is still in East Western Jordan. It can be visited today. You can see that kind of place where John had been. Many people believe he was there for about ten months before he was finally beheaded by Herod Antipas. The story tells us 
in the gospel records that John had been ministering in Jordan. And one of the things that John did that irritated Herod was he said to Herod, you've committed adultery. The Lord does not approve. And you will suffer the consequences of that sin. Herod had married his brother, his brother's wife. He had been married. He kicked his first wife out because he wanted to have Herodias as his wife instead. Herod the Tetrarch, Herod Antipas, was the son of Herod the Great. And he was given a kingdom that was split into two sections. One section in northern Israel, which is known as the Galilee region by the Sea of Galilee. And the other was known as Perea, which is actually on the Jordanian side of the Jordan River. Not too far from Jerusalem. But he occupied both territories and he had a palace in both Perea and in Galilee in a city known as Tiberias, which he himself had begun. He'd done a lot of good things for the Jews, but he was also a very wicked man, just like his father was. John condemned him for the sin of marrying Herodias. Herodias definitely did not like it. Herod didn't either, but it's very true, though, that Herod liked to hear what John had to say. Not that it influenced him in any way, but he thought that John was such a powerful speaker and the words that he spoke with were such authority. He was intrigued by him, but it wasn't enough to convert him. It was enough only to cause him to wonder, well, who is this guy? But eventually, when Herod was at a birthday party, celebrating his birthday, got very drunk, and his daughter, stepdaughter, Salome, we're told that's her name by Josephus, Salome comes and dances before the king or the Tetrarch. He's not really a king. And in that seductive dance, he was overwhelmed with the lustful thoughts of this wonderfully looking, beautiful young lady. And he said, I'll give you up to half of my kingdom for this. So she goes to ask her mother, what should I ask him for? And his mother Herodias said, "Ah, I've got it. Ask for the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And of course, you know the story. She went and asked Herod for the head of John the Baptist. He did not want to do this. But because, we're told, of all of his guests, his pride, his willingness to please the people who were there and not to be uh, you know, in any way embarrassed by refusing what he had just told his daughter he would be willing to do, he agreed to it. So they sent him to Caris, which was only a short distance away from his palace in Perea, had the head of John the Baptist brought to him, and it was given to Herodias eventually. That's how John died. John the Baptist was a great man. He was an Old Testament prophet, as I said. The reason I say that is because Christ had not yet died on the cross and been raised from the dead. So everything that John did was from the point of view of an Old Testament prophetic statement of God's coming for a particular person. He was prophesied about, but he also prophesied about the Christ. So he had a very unique place in the line of prophets 
In fact, we'll see that as we move forward in this text. John the Baptist was a very special, important man. But don't you wonder, after all he had known from his earlier days, why would John the Baptist send two of his disciples and ask the question, are you the one or should we be looking for another? The implication here is that John had begun to doubt. John had begun to think about, wait a minute, it's not working out the way I thought it was going to work out. I'm stuck in this dungeon hole, and I had been proclaiming to all of my disciples that Jesus is the Savior of the world, the one who would come and forgive us of our sins, and He is not doing what I thought that He was going to do to establish the kingdom. So it's, I think, very likely that John's doubt began to really eat on him in such a way as to cause him to think, maybe I was wrong. Maybe I shouldn't have thought or taught these things about Jesus. Is it really Him? Or should I have done something else? Did I miss the mark? Have you ever had that happen? Have you ever had that happen to you? Have you ever wondered, oh man, have I gotten it right? Am I wrong? Have I drawn the wrong conclusions? Am I following after this Jesus that the Word of God clearly speaks of? Am I doing what I should be doing with regard to my trusting in God for the salvation of my soul based upon this word, am I really, really, truly convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt? Or am I beginning to doubt because things aren't really happening the way I thought they were going to happen? Things aren't really coming to play into play like I thought they were going to. Things don't look right. And does it cause you to wonder, have I missed something? I think that's why this portion of Scripture is in its place tonight, today. Because it ministers to those who are thinking doubtful thoughts, as John apparently did. Now, yes, there are some theologians, scholars, if you will, who would argue, no, 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 that's, that's, John wasn't doubting. John would never doubt. How do they know that? And why would they say that? Because Jesus talks to John's disciples in a loving way, so that they can convey to John what he's about to tell them. He's concerned about John's doubtfulness. It tells us in verse 4, Jesus answered and said to them, his disciples, go and tell John the things which you hear and see. Well, what were they hearing? What were they seeing? Luke tells us the details. In chapter 7 of the Gospel of Luke, this same story is told by Luke, and Luke adds these things in verse 21 of chapter 7. At that very hour, he cured many of infirmities, afflictions, and evil spirits, and to many blind he gave sight. And Jesus answered and said to them, now he's talking about John's disciples, Go and tell John the things you have seen and heard, that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the dead deaf hear, and the dead are raised. The poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended 
because of me. Matthew says the very same thing. But Matthew doesn't give the fact that the disciples of John saw. They witnessed Jesus raising the dead. They witnessed Jesus healing the sick, causing the blind to see, causing the deaf to hear, causing the lepers to be cleansed. They saw the evidence of all that Jesus was doing in Galilee. And Jesus said, because of what you have just seen and heard, now go and tell John, he's the one. So that tells me something about the purpose that Jesus had in demonstrating these things of great power on behalf of those two men so they could go tell John who was in prison, it's okay, John, he's definitely the one. Well, the reason they can go confidently in that is because of what Isaiah said in chapter 35 of the book of Isaiah. Isaiah said, you will know the Messiah, you will understand that he is the one when he comes and does these things, raises the dead, heals the sick, causes the blind to see, causes the deaf to hear. And all of that which Isaiah had said in chapter 35, and it's also recorded for us in Isaiah 61, those are the things that will identify the Messiah has arrived. But when you see anyone doing all of these miracles in the land of Israel, you will know beyond a shadow of a doubt, He is the one. So Jesus said, you've seen it, now go and tell John. You don't need to question, you don't need to worry, you don't need to ask, are you the one? There is the answer. Yes. It wasn't because of what Jesus said. It was because of what Jesus did. Not that what he says was bad. Don't misunderstand me. Where the things that Jesus said were wonderful things. They were truth. They were life. And they were part of his ministry. Jesus, by the way, referred to the same requirement that John did. For all who are to believe, you must repent. You must turn from the direction that you were going and go in the opposite direction to truth. They were so far away from God and they didn't know it. Jesus and John both said the same thing. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. The slight difference between the two. When John said it, the kingdom of God is at hand. He was pointing to that which was to happen in the near future. When Jesus said it, it was here and now. So John basically was saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Jesus was saying, repent for the kingdom of God is here. The message was the same. The power of God was being manifest in the world by miraculous signs to prove the Word of God. That's why we have such confidence in what God's Word says. That's why we can come and we can proclaim this truth of who Jesus is, of what Jesus has done, and what we are to do in regard to that truth in order for us to receive the salvation that has been offered by grace through faith alone. Jesus is making it clear to John's disciples, these things that I have done are proof that I am He. And again in verse 6 of the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 11, Matthew tells us the same thing that Luke in chapter 7 did. In verse 6 of chapter 11 of the book of Matthew, he says, Blessed is he who is not offended because of me. 
Blessed is he who is not offended. All of us who have received Christ, we can have times of uncertainty that strike us, that cause us to wonder. But don't ever, ever let it impact you in such a way as to lose your faith in what Jesus has done for you. Keep in mind, He is a Son of God. He has chosen you, chosen me. And He tells us, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He tells us, I hold you in the palm of my hand and nothing can remove you from my power to hold you. He does. He will. He has. And He always will. Verse 7 says, And as they departed, Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John, What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? I say to you, yes, and more than a prophet. For this is he of whom it is written. Now, this is why John is so remarkably unique as an Old Testament prophet. This is he of whom it is written. No other prophet was spoken of with regard to these things, only John. And it tells us in verse 10, This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. The messenger, Malachi 3.1. Jesus is quoting here part of Isaiah's comments regarding the one who was to come, combining it with Malachi's message that he gave in Malachi 3.1, and he's saying, John is the fulfillment of these prophecies of the Old Testament Scriptures. This is he of whom it is written. Take note of the significance of what Jesus is saying. He wasn't just an ordinary prophet. And what can you say about prophets and call them ordinary? That doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. But in the sense of what the Old Testament prophets did, Some of them proclaimed the Word of God, which we have in the Old Testament Scriptures. They prophesied. They spoke of some future event, oftentimes. Some of them did miraculous things, like Elijah raising the dead, in addition to prophesying of the things to come. Some of them just simply wrote the Word of God that was given to them by the Spirit of God, And in that writing of the Spirit, they didn't have a public ministry, but they had a ministry of the Word to the people of God in a very powerful way. But John was different. John was unique. Yes, he also prophesied, but he did no miracles. He didn't write any of the Scripture. What makes him better than or more important than all of the other prophets, which Jesus is going to say. He says in verse 11, Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist. Not one. Not Moses. Not Daniel. Not David. Not Elijah. Not 
one. Think about that. John stands above all of the prophets in Jesus' eyes. Why? Because He alone was given the privilege of being the forerunner, the one who was to present the Messiah to the world. That was such a wonderful thing that only He, John the Baptist, was given the privilege to do. He referred to himself, remember we read it in John's Gospel, as the friend of the bridegroom. Well, you take the picture of a Jewish wedding and apply that to this man, John the Baptist, in his relationship to Jesus the Christ. And if he's the friend of the bridegroom, it means that he's like in our day, the best man at the wedding feast. He's got a special place of honor to stand before the bridegroom and present the bride and the bridegroom to the guests at the wedding. John has that privilege and he alone. Jesus says, Assuredly again in verse 11, I say to you, among all those born of women, everyone from Adam until that day and beyond, everyone who was ever born was not greater than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. What's he saying? He's saying, look people, we, all of us here who have received Christ as our Lord and our Savior, who has been given the baptism of the Holy Spirit to live for Him in these last days, filled with His Spirit, regenerated by the power of His Spirit, born again, believers in Jesus Christ. We are greater than John the Baptist. Let that sink in. If John had such great privilege of being the one to be the friend of the bridegroom, to be the one to proclaim the coming of the Messiah before all who would hear it, why are we greater than He? It's because we have greater light. We have been the recipients of greater blessings because we have believed in the risen Christ and we have entered into that relationship with Christ, not like John, but totally different. We're the bride. John's the groomsman. He's the friend of the bridegroom, but we are the bride. <laughs> oh, people, that is so wonderful. That's why Jesus was able to say so very, very clearly that those who enter into the kingdom, all who are born again believers in Jesus Christ, will enter into that place of glory, and it's better for us than it is even for John. In that sense. What a God we serve. Verse 12 says, And from the days of John the Baptist, Jesus still speaking, until now the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. Well, what's he talking about? Well, there are several opinions again. I refer to the Word of God, rather than the opinions of men. And what Jesus, I believe, is simply saying here is, look, John came and he was put into prison. There's a violent rejection of what John had to say. And they put him into a prison cell or a dungeon pit. The violent take it by force. He speaks the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, and the people reject that statement that John is making, and they violently put him away. They don't want to hear it. They get rid of him. 
I'm convinced that it wasn't just Herod who was responsible for putting John the Baptist into that dungeon cell. I'm convinced that the Pharisees and scribes who had heard John, who were against his message, must have convinced Herod that this man is trouble. So the violent take it by force. Jesus again says, from the days of John the Baptist until now, that means in that present day, that time that Jesus was presenting the same message, the kingdom of God is at hand, that message was being rejected by the leaders of the Jewish people and they were going to take him also and hang him on a cross and make sure that he does not continue anymore to proclaim that message. The violent take it by force. Now you can apply it to the church if you wish. But I don't believe it has anything to do with the church taking heaven by force. It makes no sense that the church is going to do that. We aren't taking anything by force. We're standing against the gates of hell, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. We are told to stand and resist the devil, and he will flee. We're told to flee youthful lusts. We're told to live for Christ. We're told to do all those things, to love Jesus with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we're doing that by faith, but we're not taking anything by violent force. We're just proclaiming His truth and standing on the Word of God. And in doing so, though we're fully armored for the task, that standing alone is enough as far as God is concerned. He's done all the work. He goes into the battle. We don't. So the violent force is being done by the enemies of God. And Jesus is saying, they did it to John, they're going to do it to me. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the violent will take it by force. Verse 13 says, For all the prophets and the law prophesied about John and until John. So he's saying John was the last of the Old Testament prophets. And he says in verse 14, And if you are willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. Whoa, wait a minute, what's he talking about here? Elijah, well, the prophecy in Malachi 4 talked about Elijah coming before the great and terrible day of the Lord. Jesus is saying, this John the Baptist, he's come, and if you'll receive it, he's Elijah. Not Elijah in person, but Elijah in spirit and in power. In fact, the angel of the Lord, Gabriel, told Zacharias that very fact. This one who is to be born of Elizabeth, your wife, is going to be great. And he will save the people. He will bring a a message to the people of salvation. And he is going to come in the spirit and power of Elijah. And Jesus is just confirming that which the angel Gabriel had spoken to Zacharias back then in those days before John was born. And John is indeed the fulfillment of that portion of the Word of God that speaks of the one who is to come in that spirit, in that power. In fact, when John was ministering in Jordan, they came and asked him, Who are you? Are you the Christ? He said, No, I'm not the Christ. Well, are you Elijah? No, I'm not Elijah. Are you that prophet? Are you Jeremiah? Are you this? Are you that? No, I am the one who has been told to speak this message alone. And he gave that message to them. That message that the Messiah was about to come on the scene. He was a forerunner. That's all he was in his eyes. He was nothing more. That's why he was able to say, He, Jesus, must increase and I, John, must decrease. 
I'm not taking any more credit than I have been given by God alone. Jesus said He's come in the spirit and power of Elijah. That's what He's spoken of here. Now, if you remember the story in the Old Testament about Elijah, you would probably, I hope, recall that Elijah didn't actually die. Elijah was with his mentor, Elisha, and they were walking along near the river, and Elijah said, you wait here. Elisha said, no, I'm going with you. Well, they crossed the Jordan. And Elijah asked Elisha, what do you want from me? And he said, I want the Lord to give me a double portion of what you have had of the Spirit of God. And Elijah said, that's not for me to give. But the Lord will show you. The Lord will give you what He wants to give. And as he spoke those words, Elisha saw the heavens open and Elijah caught up into heaven. He didn't die. He was translated into glory. There's only one other instance of that kind of event in all of Scripture. And that was with regard to Enoch, the seventh from Adam. And Enoch, it says, walked with God. At the age of 365 years old, he was taken because he walked with God. Taken. He didn't die. He was caught up. That's the word in the original Hebrew. He was taken up. So Elijah and Enoch are the only two men that, from the point of view of the Scriptures, and from my point of view, I hope it's yours also, they did not pass from life through death into glory. Well, what's that mean? Well, there are a couple of possibilities. In the seven years of tribulation, the first three and a half years are going to be marked by a very special pair of men who will be standing in Jerusalem, prophets of God, and they are going to be doing miraculous things during those first three and a half years. One of them we believe to be Elijah. The other one, well, there's kind of a couple of different possibilities. It could be Moses. It could be Enoch. And for me to take time to discuss that probably would take another couple of sermons, so I'm not going to bother going into any more detail than that. But you can study that on your own, and you can come to your own conclusions. It may be others, but it's very likely to at least be one of them, Elijah. Elijah must come, because it tells us in Malachi chapter 3 and Malachi chapter 4 that Elijah does come before that great and terrible day of the Lord comes. So Elijah is a very significant individual. John has come in the spirit and power of Elijah. So Jesus is saying, that's what John is. That's who he is. That's what he has come for. And you must understand that he is a very great and important man of God. And there's none other like him. So if you're willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. And then in verse 15, he says one of my favorite phrases of the Lord. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. We have two ears. Use at least one of them to hear what God is saying. Use them both to make sure that you understand. 
He who has an ear to hear, let him or her hear. It's important. Jesus is saying very, very profound things in this passage. He's identifying John for who he is. He's identifying himself for who he is. When John sent his disciples to ask, are you the one? Jesus didn't answer yes. He just said, look at what I have been doing and make your own conclusion based upon what you see and hear. And then verse 16, now the disciples of John have already left, but he's turning to the multitudes and he asks this question. To what shall I liken this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their companions and saying, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We mourned for you, and you did not lament. And now Jesus explains what he's saying here by saying this in verse 18, For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is justified by her children. Remember, Jesus had said, From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. Jesus is now here saying, Look, we came with two different points of view, if you will, two different presentations of the gospel message. We came to tell you about God's purpose and plan for mankind, but you wouldn't hear. John came, an ascetic, out in the wilderness, separating himself from the things of the world. He was very unique in the way he presented the truth of God's word. But he was very, very powerfully speaking of the goodness and mercy and grace of God in his message. He came, neither eating or drinking, and they who were against him, the Pharisees, the tribes, the Sadducees, the leaders of the people, he's got a demon. They rejected John the Baptist. He had a message that they would not hear. He's like the ones that Jesus talks about, the children playing games. We played funeral for you, but you wouldn't participate in it. And then we played happy time. But you wouldn't participate in that. He's referring to his own ministry. They had asked, why is it that our disciples fast, but your disciples don't fast? Jesus said, how can they fast when the bridegroom is with them? It's a time for joy. It's a time for for celebration. Jesus went into those places where the scribes and Pharisees would never go. He went into places like a tax collector's home. He went into places that those who were righteous would never even come close to associating themselves with. And they accused him. Look at this guy. He eats with tax collectors and sinners, a wine-bibber and a glutton. So they rejected him too. They rejected the good things. They rejected the bad things. In their eyes, neither of them were right in their presentation of God's Word. And he said, they rejected John, they're going to reject me, and we've been giving them the message that they need to hear. And that's why he says at the end of verse 19, wisdom is justified by her children. Wisdom from God is an elusive thing for many people. Oh, there are a lot of people who think they have wisdom. They think themselves to be wise. 
but in God's eyes, they're fools. Godly wisdom is wisdom that comes from God alone. You read through the the Proverbs, rather, and you see so many wonderful places in the book of Proverbs that speak of wisdom. And it's something that should be sought after. And it's easy to receive, to gain wisdom, because all you need to do is ask for it. The greatest example of that is Solomon, who when he began the throne of his kingdom, sitting on the throne that once was his father David's, he realized that he as a young man was overwhelmed with the responsibility that he had lying ahead of him. And he cried out to God and said, Lord, I need wisdom. I need understanding to rule over this people, your people. And God's answer to Solomon was beautiful. He said, look, Solomon, because you didn't ask for riches, because you didn't ask for great wealth or honor, I'm going to give you wisdom, which you did ask for, and I'm going to give you all of the others besides. God was pleased with Solomon's request for understanding, for wisdom, to rule over the people. And he wants all of us to realize that we should be asking for wisdom just like Solomon did in every situation that we are facing in our own lives. Pray for wisdom, because it's through wisdom that we are able to cope with all those various things that come our way. However troubling, however difficult they may be, we need God's wisdom to deal with them. He's willing to give it freely. Beginning of wisdom, or rather wisdom is the beginning of fear of God. And we need the fear of God in our lives. That's a good thing. In verse 20 to the end of the chapter, Jesus brings a rebuke to those who would not accept these words. See, John wondered, are you the one? He had doubts. But Jesus gave him the answer that he needed to quell quell those doubts. But there are those who not only doubt, but they reject. And Jesus here addresses those. In verse 20 he says, Then he began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Think about this. The cities that he's going to be talking about are places where he had been, where he had been doing all these miracles, and yet they would not receive. They closed their eyes, shut their ears, their hearts were hardened, and they would not receive, and they would not repent. And he condemns them for it. He says very, very sadly, verse 21, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Now, we don't even know what he did in those places. There's no record of in any of the Gospels accounts that he visited those cities of Bethsaida and Chorazin to do mighty works, but he says he did. And so you have to understand that what Jesus did is not necessarily completely revealed to us. In fact, John, in the last chapter of the book of John, said, look, Jesus did many things, many things. 
And if we were to record all of them, I suppose that even the whole world could not contain the books that would be written. Jesus did a lot of things that we don't know anything about. But John, the disciple of Jesus, was there. Peter, the disciple of Jesus, was there. James was there. Thomas was there. Mark knew about it because he was familiar with what was going on as a disciple of Peter. He understood and wrote the Gospel of Mark. Luke was told by Paul and others about the wonderful, miraculous things. And he, as a Gentile, came to faith and proclaimed the words that he is the Savior of the world because he had heard and he had seen the miracles that Paul was doing. He believed because he had seen with his eyes and opened his ears and his heart to the truth. And so it is with all of those who have followed after each one of them. We believe by faith in what Christ has done. But they would not repent. Think about that. They would not repent. And even Tyre and Sidon, two Gentile cities in what we know of as Lebanon today, those cities had heard a limited message. Elijah had come to Tyre and spent many days there, prophet of God, spending times in a Gentile territory. Only one woman that we know of received the word that he was proclaiming. If Tyre and Sidon had seen the miracles that Jesus was doing in that day, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But the people of Chorazin, the people of uh, Bethsaida did not. And for that, Jesus is condemning him. He says it would have been more tolerable if you had done what is right you wouldn't be suffering the consequences of your unwillingness to repent. And their judgment is greater to you than that which was going to be the result of Tyron Sidon's rejection of what little they did know. To much who is given, much is required. There is a degree of punishment as well as a degree of reward. We spoke of that in the past. Well, this is what Jesus is saying here. Tyre and Sidon are going to be judged, but not so severely as those who had been with Jesus experiencing those things that he had done in their presence. That's the message that he's giving to us and to them in that day. I say to you in verse 22 again, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And then he goes on to the city, which actually was his home base, the city of Capernaum, where he spent most of his time. And many of the healings that we have in the gospel records were done in Capernaum that around in that area. And he says of Capernaum, verse 23, and you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven because you have such a special place, because that's the place where my ministry had been so centered in, that place you've been exalted to heaven, you will be brought down to Hades. Ouch. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. Sodom was destroyed because of their wickedness. They were a terrible place of sin. We get the word sodomy from the city of Sodom, and that means homosexual relationships. Sodomy is an evil that God hates. Was then, is now. And in that day, the day of Abraham... God judged the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah because of their sinful nature. They would not repent from that. And God brought terrible judgment against those cities. He consumed them in a great fire. They do not exist. But 
He says, if the mighty works which you have seen done in you, Capernaum, had been done in Sodom, it would still be around today. In spite of all of their wickedness, if they had heard and seen what you have heard and seen, they would not be punished as they were. Verse 24 says, But I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Well, they were judged physically in that day. The city was destroyed. All the people died. But there's coming a day of judgment. Those who died in Sodom are going to be raised from the dead along with those who are no longer citizens of Capernaum or of Bethsaida or of Chorazin. And they will all be raised up and stand before the God of glory at the great white throne of judgment. And it will be more tolerable for the people of Sodom than it was or will be rather for them who are in this city, that was Jesus' home base. You see, it's because they think they are wise. They don't ask the question, are you the coming one? They're making a clear statement, you're not the coming one. We don't believe in you. We won't receive you. We won't accept you. The price to pay for such arrogance You're not the Christ. You're not our King. Oh, yes, He is. Verse 25 says, At that time Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the prudent and have revealed them to babes. I love that. He thinks of you as little children, babes. That's special. That's endearing. That's who we are if we've accepted Christ as our Savior. And we're not dealing with the judgment that is about to come upon this world because of who we have faith in. That judgment is coming for the unjust, those who refuse to believe. They think themselves wise, but they're fools. For the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. You've hidden them from the wise and prudent, revealed them to babes, And lastly, in verse 26, Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. The Lord is in control. He knows what He's doing. He knows the result that is going to be the fate of those who reject. But He wants as many as who will come to do so. It's not God's will that any should perish, but they all should come to eternal life. We know that to be the case It's truth. It's what the Word of God declares. And we know that there is a time coming when there will be no more opportunity for people to get saved. The Bible tells us that there is a number that God has in mind because He says there is coming a day when the fullness of Gentiles will be come in. And what He's saying in that statement is simply this, that God's got a number in mind. And when the last person to get saved does get saved, then will come the time when the church will no longer be needed in the, in the world. Because it's our job to proclaim what we've heard 
what we know to be true. It's our job to be representatives of this God that we serve as stewards of the mysteries of God, as His ambassadors. We are to rightly divide the word of truth so that we might stand before Him someday soon, I hope, and not be ashamed, but be glorified in this wonderful promise that He has given to all of those who trust in Him. You look upon His people and say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter now into the kingdom that's been prepared for you from the foundation of the world. That's what I long to hear. And I believe that the voice of Jesus will soon call to us, Come up here. It's time. Are you ready? Are you living in doubt? Are you living in fear? Are you living in uncertainty about what you believe? Are you wondering, Have I believed rightly? about the things of God? Has He spoken to me in this word, words of truth? Can I trust in this Bible? The answer to all of that should be yes and amen. The promises of God are indeed yes and amen. Let that be your confidence today that what you have heard, what you have read, what you have been told, what you believe is indeed the truth that God has conveyed to you. And you've received it by faith, and that is enough. Let's pray.